You are listening to sermons from New Creation Reformed Presbyterian Church. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we continue in the holy ordinances of worship, we come now to this portion of the reading of your word and of the proclamation of your word in the preaching and teaching of the Holy Scriptures. And we ask you to be pleased to bless this part of your worship, that it would bring you glory and honor. You have given us this uh, word for our edification and teaching. And the work that you are doing in us is part of that great work of salvation, which will uh, be glorious in its completion on the final day. And so we pray that now, as we hear your word and as we give our attention to uh, understanding it, that you would be pleased to bless it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 12, and beginning at verse 1. Again, this is God's holy word. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, 
you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hands he, to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. And thus far the reading of God's holy word. Now we're going to be looking at these verses together, these 19 verses. And in these verses we are told of the imprisonment of Peter. And we are also shown the prayer of the church for Peter. And then we see, of course, the great answer to that prayer. Uh, one of the main purposes of these events, why they took place and why they are recorded for us, is to teach us and to reassure us about the purpose of prayer. That is to say, to help us further realize and be encouraged by the reality that prayer is the means of God's act or a means by which God acts. There is a connection uh, between prayer and the actions of God. What we see taking place here is the loving, preserving work of Jesus Christ, uh, King and Head of the Church, protecting his servant Peter, and all of it is in connection to the prayer of the church. Now the Lord doesn't need us to pray in order to act. In fact, we know that God acted prior to any prayer ever mentioned by any cre creature because God the Creator is the only one who's eternal. No one prayed for God to create the universe. Nothing existed. And so God acted in creating all things without anyone asking for it. After mankind fell into sin through the disobedience of Adam and Eve, there was no prayer from mankind to God for salvation. Adam and Eve didn't call out to God, Oh Lord, forgive us, we've sinned, please save us, have mercy on us. God acted sovereignly to bring salvation. And when we think of the church praying, whether it's a, an individual Christian or a Christian home or a Christian congregation, uh, or the larger uh, body of the church. When we think of the church praying, uh, we need to realize that all of the members of the church entered into existence in unbelief, that is to say, dead in sin, not praying. And so the, the fact that the church prays is the re result of God first acting in their behalf. God, you see, is the one who saves and recreates individuals to make them prayers, to make them to be those who would pray. This is part of his salvation. Salvation includes God working a spirit of prayer in his people. God wants believers to pray to him. 
It's part of the change that he brings in the lives of, he sa of those he saves. Uh, those who are addicted to many different kinds of sin. When God saves them, of course, he's going to begin to change those habits and remove those addictions. He's going to change the way Christians use their tongue. He's going to clean up their tongues and help them to speak kindly and graciously. He's going to change their behavior. And he's also going to turn people into people who pray to him. And the reason why they are turned into people who pray to God is again to bring glory to him. Because God in working in their hearts is working that knowledge of utter dependence upon him. And that sense of giving all credit and all glory to God for everything that he does. This is why prayer is called a means of grace, by the way. Prayer is a means by which a person is conformed to the image of Christ. But, as we'll see here, prayer is also an instrument of action. You've heard the expression, the power of prayer. The power of prayer. And uh, that's taken from James, isn't it? The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working, or as it's working. So the Bible says, prayer has great power. If you think of the electrical outlets in your house, maybe you've gone to use an appliance like the vacuum cleaner, and you go and you throw the switch, and nothing happens, and there's that little sense of panic. You don't know what happens, and you realize it's not plugged in. And you need to plug it in to get that power. And prayer is like plugging in to God. Well, here in Acts chapter 12, we're given an account of the power of prayer. Peter was supernaturally delivered from prison in connection to the prayers of God's people. So let's look at this passage. Let's work our way through it. And we're going to look at it in three parts. First of all, we're going to look at the imprisonment of Peter. The imprisonment of Peter. And then we're going to look at the prayer of the church. And then finally, the Lord's answer to this prayer. So first of all, let's look at the imprisonment of Peter. Look with me at the first five verses. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, here we see then the beginning of another wave of persecution. And that is how God in history uh, seems to bring about persecution. It comes in waves. We've seen the waves of persecution in the books, book of Acts. Um, just as God also sends times of blessing and reformation in waves, it seems. Now, this time, the persecution is coming from the state, 
from the civil authority. Before we saw persecution from the priests, from the leaders of the Jewish church. You remember Saul of Tarsus, now the Apostle Paul, he was sent by the priests to persecute the church. But here we see that the state is now getting involved, King Herod. And we read here that King Herod put James to death. He put James to death. Now remember, this is James, the brother of John. You read the Gospels, and James was one of the close three. The close three is always Peter, James, and John. They were privileged to have a specially close relationship with the Lord. They were able to see things that the other disciples didn't get to see. And this shows us something a bit of the mystery of God's providence, doesn't it? I mean, here is this man, James, that we read of as one of the close three in all the Gospels. And then we don't read much about him at all in the New Testament. And what we find out is after 10 years, he's the first of the apostles to be put to death. Why would God remove James after giving him all of these special privileges if he only keeps him in the world for 10 years? Well, that's part of his providence. God has a purpose in doing that. One of the reasons, of course, would be, as we look at these events, is that the execution of James and then the arrest of Peter with the intention of executing Peter did something. It moved the church to earnest prayer. It stirred the church to pray. God allows trials and seasons of difficulty in order to stir up seasons of fervent prayer. And that's one of the reasons why this is taking place here. Now look at verse 2. Speaking of Herod. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also, when he saw that it pleased the Jews. What a frightening thought. Can you imagine government leaders doing things because it pleases the people? This is the great liability and danger that every civil leader faces, the temptation to govern based on popular opinion rather than biblical principle. What do my subjects want me to do? rather than, what is right? What would God have me to do? You remember Pontius Pilate crucified Jesus Christ, and he did so even against his own conscience. Even against his own conscience, and he did so as an expedient. I have to satisfy this crowd, otherwise there'll be a riot, and then the emperor is gonna remove me. And here's Herod. Not so much as he afraid that he will be removed, but Herod, as we will find out later in the end of this uh, chapter, Herod is a man who loves the praise and popularity of the people. He wants the people to think that uh, he's a great, a great man, a great man. And so he wants their approval. 
popularity politics. And it's so dangerous because we know that the heart of man is sinful. And when we just appeal to the hearts of sinful men for our laws and so on, our government, it's only uh, going to result in a disaster. And it's only going to get worse. You know, this idea of popularity politics, uh, when you think about it, think about how it's, how it's going in our own day, right? You know, when abortion uh, first became legal, uh, there were many liberals who were pro-life and stood against it. And now you cannot be a liberal and be pro-life. And then you'd think, well, at least the conservatives held out and were for pro-life. But no, that's now going away as well. Now to be a conservative, you're not allowed to talk about it. You have to have your own private opinion. And the reason why is because of all of these algorithms that are taking place, you know, and all of the, um, the use of psychology and uh, how uh, advertising works in order to, to uh, mine the field, as it were, and get a sense of what do the people want? What will please them? This is going to be our policy. And you know what's even more striking? It's interesting. Notice here, it says that Herod saw, when he saw that it pleased the Jews... Did it please all of the Jews? No. The Christians, the Christian Jews were very opposed to this, obviously. They were very upset. But you see, that wasn't Herod's base. That wasn't his base. He wanted to appeal to his base, and that's the way it is today. So the great temptation that uh, rulers face is the temptation to rule by popularity and that's what's going on here and so he puts Peter in prison and his intention is to execute uh, Peter as soon as the Passover is over and get, again here we see that God's providence is serving a purpose uh, the Lord allowed James to be uh, executed almost immediately there was no time to do anything but here the Lord had arranged things that Peter couldn't be executed immediately. He had to stay in prison for a couple of days, and that gave the church opportunity to pray. Herod had to wait. And so the church could pray. And this is something that you and I can think of, the opportunities that God gives us for prayer. That the things that take place in our lives don't always immediately take place. That sometimes they are above us, as it were, in our heads as something that's on the horizon, looming, and the Lord gives us opportunity to pray. Well, the Lord often brings us into these times in order to awaken an utter dependence upon Him, and in order for us to understand the nature of the warfare that Christians are in. Do you see how the battle lines are drawn here between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. It's very interesting, isn't it? Peter is in prison in Jerusalem. Uh, we don't know for certain. There may have been more prisons, but of course the most famous prison in Jerusalem. And one might think that Peter, being a very high-profile prisoner, would be in this prison, would be the prison fortress, the Roman fortress, Antonia. And... 
Here Herod has assigned four squads of soldiers, at least 16 soldiers, uh, to keep watch over him. And we get a sense of Peter's situation by the description of his deliverance. There he is in a cell. He's got two chains. His arms are chained to a wall. He's got two guards on either side of him in the cell with him, and then a locked door, and then on the other side of the door, guarding are another set of guards in an outer gate. This is the kingdom of darkness. Uh, and this is part of the arsenal of the kingdom of darkness. This is what they have. They have chains. They have cells. They have locked doors. They have guards. These are all physical and carnal weapons, as it were. The weapons of this world. Now, what is the kingdom of God have prayer prayer they don't have physical weapons 2nd Corinthians 10 4 for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds like the fortress Antonia prayer is a weapon of divine power to destroy strongholds so here we see the world's prison on one side and the church's prayer on the other side. And what do you think is more powerful? You know, it's interesting, isn't it? You see, the, the church didn't meet to plan a jailbreak. You know, at, the, at uh, uh, Mary's house, we don't see all these Christians coming together and then, you know, Laying out on the kitchen table, here's a sword I have, you know, what do you have? I got this club, you know, I brought some chains here, and all right, what's our plan? We're going to, we'll take out these other guards and we'll break through, and you get a distraction. That's not at all what they're doing. They have come to pray. They've come to pray. Those are, those are the, these are the weapons that the church has. And of course, we see in this chapter the complete victory of the kingdom of God over the kingdom of darkness in this matter. Peter's released supernaturally through an angel these soldiers are executed and then what we learn at the end of the chapter is that Herod himself is struck down by an angel and so it's interesting that this chapter begins with Herod ready to execute Peter and God sends an angel to deliver Peter but then he sends an angel to destroy Herod Remember that uh, show? Uh, I've never seen it. I'm only going to appeal to the title of it, Touched by an Angel. Remember the, t the title of that show anyways? Touched by an Is that a Michael Landon thing or something? Everyone's shaking their heads no. There used to be a show called Touched by an Angel, I think. It just struck me in preparing the, the, the message here is that, uh, you know, it's important that you understand what it means to be touched by an angel. Because there's a big difference between being touched by an angel if you're in Christ and you're a child of God and you've been saved by his blood and mercy and you're trusting him by faith. The touch of an angel is all for your behalf and blessing. You remember um, Lot and God was merci merciful on Lot and the angel grabbed his hand and pulled him out of Sodom. And here the angel of the Lord pulls Peter out of prison but you know, the angel of the Lord, when he lays his hand on Herod, he destroys him. 
And it's, a, it's such an important reminder. We need to be right with God. Need to be right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, there is the prison that Peter was in. The prison. Let's look now at the prayer of the church. The prayer of the church. Look at verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, there's a great deal that could be said about prayer, obviously. We could talk about the occasions for prayer, whether they are scheduled occasions, you know, if you think of morning, noon, and night, or at family worship, or times in public worship, and so on. And then there are kinds of prayer, family prayer, there's prayer meetings, there's corporate prayer in worship, and in probably of first line, secret prayer. Uh, individual private prayer of, of a Christian. It's very interesting when you look at the Psalms which provide us with uh, the material of prayer uh, how they are uh, virtually always, almost always uh, just in terms of personal, right? Lord, hear me. Hear my cry. Uh, the importance of secret private prayer. But here, of course, we see a prayer meeting. And it's an emergency prayer meeting. This isn't just a regular prayer meeting. This is a prayer meeting that occurred as the result of this event that took place. Peter, James was executed and Peter was arrested. And so this is an emergency prayer meeting. It was a meeting that spontaneously arose in light of a sudden, desperate need. The result of this need. Peter on death row. Now, all prayer, whenever it's done, whether it's secret, private, family, church, or in a prayer meeting, all prayer, at all times, uh, is to be fervent. It is to be thoughtful. It is to be done in faith, right? uh, believing and trusting in God. However, there are times and situations that God brings about where there is an automatic, almost involuntar involuntary investment of one's entire emotional being into prayer, a sense of desperate need and a crying out to God. And these are are times that aren't constant. Uh, the reason why I mention that is that we should be careful to avoid trying to artificially recreate what is taking place here. You know, to say, here's what a regular prayer meeting is to be like, this kind of fervency, and so on. Because every prayer meeting won't be like this. You know, it won't be like this. It, it, it will be more regular, as it were. That doesn't diminish the power of prayer. But here we see this tremendous realization among uh, all, of the, all of the members of the church that only God's answer to this desperate need uh, can we see Peter delivered. We, uh, this burden uh, that's created by this sense of helplessness. And the Lord has brought this to the church. Again, regular prayer meetings, are good and right and ought to be ought not to be neglected, uh, but don't think they will always have this kind 
of fervency. Now, a couple of other things to notice here. Again, Christians gathered together to worship. If you look at verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Many were gathered together and were praying. Uh, that is a good thing for Christians in a congregation to come together for prayer. We have prayer meetings. Uh, I know some of you don't attend prayer meetings uh, when you're able. Uh, you're able, but you're not willing. Now, I'm not trying to guilt trip anybody into attending prayer because that's a bad motive, is to feel bad. Oh, I guess I got to go to prayer or something. No, this should be something you want to do. Uh, and that's what was taking place here, that the sense of need brought them together in prayer. Something else that's interesting here, though, that we should take note of, this is very important as well. And verse 5 tells us that prayer for Peter was being made by the church. Look at verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. By the church. But you know, when we look at verse 12, it says that at the house of Mary, the mother of John, where many were gathered together and were praying. It doesn't say the church was gathered there and was praying, but many were gathered there and praying. Again, in verse 17, when Peter shows up at Mary's house and talks to them, look at what he says. But motioning them, he describes this. And then he says, tell these things to James and to the brothers. So what does this show us here? When it says in verse 5 that earnest prayer was being made by the church, this is referring to the entire church in Jerusalem. And we know that the church in Jerusalem was made up of thousands of people. Thousands of people. But at Mary's house, they weren't all there. James wasn't there. The other brothers weren't there. And so they were to be informed of what has taken place. Now, it may, have been the ca it may be the case that in verse 5, when it says that the whole church was in prayer, it may be that the church was gathered together in all the different houses in congregations and group and praying. And that may be. And it may be that James was at another congregational house praying. Uh, or it may be, and I think this is probably more likely, that there were groups of Christians who were coming together, like at Mary's house, and praying. But regardless of that, every Christian in the church, in their own private homes, had Peter on their heart and mind as they were praying for him. And so that's something that's worth noticing here. Now, there's something else that's very interesting here when you think about this prayer. Notice this. Peter was the only item on the prayer list. Peter was the only item on the prayer list. But it's clear that this prayer was going on for hours through the night. Now, this means that there must have been a great deal of repetition in these prayers. A great deal of repetition. I can remember in seminary one time, a professor 
uh, asked if he, if he would, if I would like to pray with him up in the rare books room. And uh, I was very pleased to do so. I highly, uh, really, really like this professor. He's my favorite professor. We went up in the prayer, rare books room and we talked about some items to pray and then we prayed. He said, how about you begin? And so I prayed and then he prayed and then guess what happened? I looked up and he was still praying and he started again. And then I went down and then I realized, oh, we're going to keep going back and forth. Have you ever been at a prayer meeting where it's just the, the thought that, you know, you pray, you pray, you pray. Okay, we're done. Everybody's said it. Well, that's not what's taking place here. Here it's obvious that there must have been a great deal of repetition. How many different ways can believers pray for the same thing in a prayer meeting? Earnest repetition, earnest repetition is not the same as vain repetition. When Jesus says, when you pray, do not heap up empty words and phrases as the Gentiles do. They think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, this is not a multitude of empty phrases. Okay? This was sincere prayer and earnest prayer, even though its content was repeated several times. Think about the repetition of our Lord's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Three times he prayed that the cup would be removed from him, yet not my will, but your will be done. Well, think about this prayer meeting at Mary's house. If there were some 120 people, so you say there were 120 people, and they each prayed for Peter three times, well, there's 360 prayers for Peter throughout the night. And so earnest prayer using repetition is not a vain thing. Not a vain thing. They were using the time that was given and they were praying for Peter. Well then, let's move on and look at the answer to this prayer. The answer to this prayer. Now notice that Peter was put in prison during the days of unleavened bread. When did this take place? When was the Feast of Unleavened Bread? We have two Gillespie students in the congregation here, and I could ask this. Uh, immediately following Passover. Okay? And it lasted for seven days then. Sometimes Passover is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread because it's included to that. The terms can be used interchangeably. But Peter was arrested during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, and that means then, since this began on the 15th and ended seven days later on the 17th, that means then that prayer was being made for Peter for several days, at least a few days. And it may have seemed to the church that their hope of an answer uh, was beginning to dry up. It doesn't look like it's God's will that Peter be released. But they kept, they kept praying. They kept praying. Now, as you know, some say that here these Christians and in this prayer meeting, uh, they really didn't have faith, right? As they were praying, 
when Peter shows up, it's as if they can't believe that their prayer would be answered. And so some would say it didn't seem that they even believed that this could really happen. And uh, I don't think that this is the case. I think it's obvious that they did believe that God could deliver Peter. But it seems very clear that they were thinking about Peter's deliverance in terms of God using ordinary means. Using ordinary means. They may have been praying, you know, Lord, change the heart of Herod. You know, Lord, send a wise counselor in there to talk Herod out of this. Lord, help Herod to wake up on the right side of the bed and suddenly say, you know what, let's let the guy go. It seems that they didn't believe that Peter was going to be supernaturally delivered. Look at verses 14 through 17. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hands, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. How the Lord had done it by an angel, supernaturally. You see, it, it's as if they were expecting that the Lord would be using ordinary means. And they weren't expecting that it would take place immediately. Perhaps they were thinking, if God is going to answer our prayer, it's going to take place in the morning. You know, we're going to pray all night, and then when we're done praying, we'll see how God answers the prayer. Maybe he will do something. And this is often how we pray, isn't it? It's often how we pray. We pray in connection to means, right? Lord, bless the work of the doctors. Give them Wisdom. Bless the use of this medicine. Lord, grant a job opportunity. Uh, help me to say what is right in the interview, and so on. And these, uh, this way of praying is completely right, completely legitimate, because it is God who has ordained these means, and we ask God to bless these means. But we also need to remember that when we're praying for God to act, He can act above and beyond supernaturally to answer this. God can answer in an extraordinary way that we're not expecting. And here is a supernatural way that took them by surprise. God answered their prayer before he, they thought he would. They didn't think that he would answer their prayer. They're expecting that, all right, we'll keep praying and then the Lord will answer it in the morning. You know, Spurgeon tells a story of a severe drought that uh, took place in England and all the farmers gathered together for a prayer meeting. Uh, but there was only one young girl who came to the meeting with an umbrella. And she thought, well, if we're going to pray for rain, maybe it is that the Lord's going to bring it while we're praying. You know, Isaiah chapter 65 verse 24 says this, Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. And that's what happened here. God answered while they were praying. And that took them by surprise, so much so that they, they didn't believe it happened. Now, there, 
is great encouragement here because this does show to some degree a measure of unbelief, a weakness in faith, and yet that doesn't change the power of prayer and God's answer to prayer. And there's something else though that's very interesting that's taking place here when you look at how God answered this prayer. When you look at how God answered this prayer. Look down at verse 6. Look down at verse 6. Well, back up verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. So from Peter's point of view, this is the last night of his life in this world. He's going to wake up to execution. And yet he's sleeping. How is it that Peter is sleeping? Why is Peter sleeping? Well, one explanation might be is that Peter has matured. Right? He has changed. You remember before when he boldly said... Uh, before Jesus was crucified, I'm going to go to the cross for you. I'm, I'm not going to deny you. I'm going to go right to the end with you. And then he denied the Lord three times. And it may be after that that he has matured. And he's never going to let that happen again. And he grew in his faith to such an extent by God's grace that he's able to, even on the night of uh, the eve of his execution, to sleep. That might be. That might be an explanation. Another explanation may be that he knew that he wasn't going to be killed the next day. He knew that. Why? Because Jesus had told him that when he is old, he is going to be lifted up or taken to where he didn't want to go. And Jesus told him that to inform him of the kind of death that he would suffer in his old age which was crucifixion. You'll be lifted up. You'll be carried. That was telling him the kind of death. You are going to be crucified. You are going to experience that baptism. And it may be that Peter is there in prison saying, well, I don't know how this is going to happen, but I know that Jesus told me that I'm going to be crucified when I'm old and I'm just middle-aged right now, and so I don't think I'm going to be executed tomorrow. That may be as well. Those are good explanations. But surely... Could it not be that Peter was asleep because the church was praying for him? In other words, Peter was set free from his fears and able to sleep like a baby on the eve of his execution. Think about that for a moment. If you were part of the prayer meeting, praying for Peter in prison... Would you not ask God to give Peter peace? Help Peter not to worry? Would you pray that the Lord would keep Peter from denying his faith and his Lord? You know his experience in the past. You know what he's like. Wouldn't you pray that way for Peter? Turn back to Psalm 34. We read this earlier. And uh, we sang from it. But if you turn to Psalm 34, it's very interesting. The progression to answered prayer in the midst of affliction and hardship that we find here. 
If you look at verse 4, look at what it says. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. The Lord delivered me from all my fears. I have peace. I'm not afraid of the sword tomorrow. I'm not afraid of the cancer. I'm not afraid of this suffering that's coming upon me. But then look at verse 6. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Do you see there the progression? Oh, how we want to be delivered from all troubles. We want Peter out of prison. But if that's not the Lord's will, at least grant that he'd be delivered from his fears. Give to him peace. And we see here how then the Lord was answering the prayers of the church, granting first peace to the heart of Peter, and then finally and ultimately his complete deliverance. Well, may we be encouraged together as we consider these uh, verses about prayer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you do hear the prayers of your people, whether it be individually or as families or as congregations. Lord, we are grateful that power is to be found uh, in prayer as we would call down heaven itself uh, to work in the advancement of your kingdom and to the blessing of your people. And we pray that you would indeed encourage us in this great work of prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to sermons from New Creation Reformed Presbyterian Church. God bless you.